This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Today on the podcast, Macklemore's protege, Travis Thompson, will talk about his latest album. When you ask around about Travis Thompson in like Seattle hip-hop circles, they'll be like, oh yeah, that was a little chubby kid with the backpack like in the Justin Bieber hair. And remember Dessa, the hip-hop artist from Minneapolis, whose last album was inspired by her being in a case study led by neuroscientists to train her mind to get over her ex? Well, she's now about to release a new live album where she's accompanied by an orchestra. It felt like I was being lifted by by strings from the ceiling, you know, and I felt my eyes well up. We'll hear why only 2% of music producers are women. At like 4 in the morning, I was like cleaning a toilet with somebody who had worked there for like three years. We'll hear about the musician boycott against Amazon over their ties with ICE. The pledge is more a way for artists to express solidarity with one another while trying to take a stance then it is a realistic way of forcing Amazon to change its behavior. And Pitchfork will talk about a court case that puts the blame of a musician's overdose on the artist's management and handlers. We'll hear how that could impact the music industry. The texts that are in this lawsuit suggest that he was you know, messaging with his management team for these drugs and they were getting them for him. But first, let's check in with new music from Sudan Archives. Sudan Archives might seem like a strange name for someone born and raised in Cincinnati. But for Brittany Denise Parks, it makes sense. Her mom gave her the nickname Sudan as a kid, and the term archives refers to a musicologist's archives in the depth and variety of music in the world. Sudan Archives' newest album is called Athena, and it came out this week. In the album, Parks goes through different genres and collaborates with Washed Out and Danny Brown. The one constant through the work is her use of violin, an instrument she learned to play in church as a kid. The idea of mixing violin with electronic instruments and drum machines was inspired by a Cameroonian artist, Francis Bebe. He's like an ethnomusicologist, so he knows a lot about like about string instruments and I learned about like all of these one string instruments around the world and his music is really cool and when I heard that I just thought that was like the perfect combination of like um, string instruments and electronic music so I started like mixing in my iPad beats with violin. That's Sudan Archives. Her latest album is called Athena that came out this week. Here's the track Glorious. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Dessa is releasing a live album on Friday. It was recorded with the Minnesota Orchestra. It's called Sound of the Bells, recorded live at Orchestra Hall. Double joining, triple threat. I'm not some method actress trying to see my, my descent. You're going to have to play the tape back with save the breath for choir practice. Got no time for my detractor standing on my staircase. All you want is a fire Dessa made major waves last year when she released an album inspired by a sort of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind experiment. 
She was a case study who worked with neuroscientists to scientifically train her brain to fall out of love with her ex. Dessa joins me now to talk about her latest project. Hi, Dessa. Hey, how are you? To combine hip-hop, which is what you do, with an orchestra seems like an amazing project to be a part of. And most of these songs on this album are from tracks off your previous records. Was there a moment where you first heard a song and, and heard it come to life in a totally new way because of the orchestration around it? Yeah, there were. I mean, the first time I heard it, it was probably like two reactions at once. It was like, oh, my God, this is so big. But also... Like, oh, my God, this is so hard. <laughs> it's a really different skill. So the very first time I was probably having like conflicting responses, like, how am I going to learn how to rap over this? It's so different. The, the sound is coming from the wrong direction. It's all behind me. My ears are facing the wrong way. How do I follow a conductor? But then after getting my sea legs a little bit, um, I remember in the there's like a musical outro for a song called Warsaw. And whereas in the produced version that there's like an, that instrumental outro. I might just kind of want to like move my shoulders and dance and do a shot of whiskey. And in this one, it just, um, yeah, it, it felt like I was being lifted by, by strings from the ceiling, you know, and I felt my eyes well up and, and then decide how you're going to handle that. You can pretend it's not happening, but I remember the first time I was kind of lifted up and moved to tears by that outro, thinking, I want to do that during the show, too. I want to just let that happen and be a member of the audience for this musical moment who happens to be facing the crowd. Yeah, it's big. It's big, strong stuff. I want to go back to this neuroscience case study you were a part of in 2017. Can you describe how that worked? I mean, how were you able to work with neuroscientists to try to remove feelings you had about a previous romantic relationship? Yeah. So, I mean, it really started the same way. It probably just for every, like a big, a big sad feeling starts for everybody. Like I, <laughs> a relationship ended and it had been one that I was trying to make work for a super long time, like on and off for well over a decade. And, um, was really bummed, did all the things that you're supposed to do. You know, you hang out with friends and you invest yourself in work and you go to the gym and et cetera. And I ended up moving across the country to try to get over it. And after nothing seemed to be helping, I ended up seeing this TED talk about this woman, Dr. Helen Fisher, who said that she'd put people in fMRI machines and had discovered where in the brain romantic love uh, was, was situated. And, um, and I thought, oh, oh, dang, <laughs> I didn't know there was a place that romantic love might be anchored in the brain. And if I could find mine, then maybe I could get it out. So essentially, it started with a, with a late night TED talk and then a, a tweet. I said, hey, are there any are there any neuroscientists who might be willing to trade like access to an fMRI machine for backstage passes and whiskey? And I ended up connecting with this really talented team of technicians who were who were game to try to design something to focus on that part of the brain. Yeah. And so, you know, this has now been two years. Uh, has it been successful? Medium. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, I mean, I feel, I feel a lot better than I did then. There's no two ways about it. Um, but it's not like I lobotomize myself. It's not like I'm 
you know, I, I haven't erased any part of my personal history or my memories. I still get blue. Um, also, I think as I know myself better, like I think figuring out how to how to connect and stay connected to someone, I have a feeling that's a project I'm going to be working on for a, <laughs> for a while. It's like maybe like a life project. So. But when you got, yeah. you know, you got out of, you know, this, you know, people were like attaching things to your head and like studying your brain. And, you know, the moment that you kind of got done with this case study, did you feel different immediately? I, I mean, I felt so it's, you know, it was a long term process. It took um, it took at least a couple months. So it wasn't like being microwaved or something, you know, where it's just a discreet few minutes of your life. It was a long term process. But I did, I did feel subjectively different too, right? Like when we took images of my brain activity before and after this project, we did notice changes in the way that it behaved. But I did also feel different. I didn't feel like um, totally transformed, but I didn't feel so nuts. You know, I'd been feeling really compelled and compulsed. You know, when your brain just loops. <laughs> I mean, yeah, after a, a bad breakup, I think a lot of us have done this. Where it's like, what if I had, or does he know that? Or what if I just called again? Or maybe if I just... And you just go through that script around and around. I was running that script really hard. And I felt um, I felt like there was a new release and some peace. Still still challenging feelings for sure. But it just wasn't so compulsive. Yeah. And then in 2018, you, you put out this album called Chime. And I listened through the album and there seems to be a few songs that kind of seem to be about, you know, what you were th- feeling at the time and also kind of, you know, this 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 kind of collaboration with with neuroscientists. Mm. I feel like you hear it a little bit in the song uh, Boy Crazy. You hear it in half of you. And then um, Velodrome. I don't believe my will's quite free. I'm half machine, at least half steam. Aquinas call on me. How many angels on the head of your pin? So, I mean, when you were creating the album Chime, what song do you feel like really encapsulated that that feeling or, you know, this idea of, of trying to get rid of someone, someone out of your head? Is there a song that you feel like really captures that for you? I think you probably picked it. I mean, the song Half of You was just a kind of unadorned phrasing of that question. Like, can you cure yourself of this? Is this even something you are capable of willing away? Right. In the same way that, that you can train yourself to, to wake up earlier. Right. You can, that's a willful decision. You can change a lot about your lifestyle. Right. But, um, you can teach yourself Mandarin, but I can't will myself redheaded, you know? And I, I wasn't even sure, like, is this under my, elective control can you fall out of love with somebody so that song was about that and then the song velodrome the other one that you mentioned which was in a broader way pulling the lens back and asking um like how free is free will to begin with i know it feels like we're choosing you know on a day-to-day basis i chose my lunch you and i chose to talk to each other etc but it also looks like the sun comes up and it doesn't. The earth is just spinning. A lot of things that just look <laughs> a certain way are in fact not that way on further investigation. And I'm, I have a lot of questions and I'm a little skeptical about how, how much agency we really have. That was my conversation with Dessa. Her latest album called Sound the Bells, recorded live at Orchestra Hall, will be released on Friday. 
Here's her song Velodrome off that album. I don't believe my world's quite free. I'm half ashamed, at least half steam. A quietness call on me. How many angels on the head of your pin? Anybody in stilettos can answer that old thing. It's one for the right foot, one for the left. Half an angel per pin at best. At wings, at heart, at heart, all set. We lean to turn in the velodrome. All lines are curved in the velodrome. We pitch and roll, wheels, flesh and bone, total control in it. It's ours alone. We lean to turn in the velodrome. All lines are curved in the velodrome. We pitch and roll, wheels, flesh and bone, total control in it. It's ours alone. So we just heard from two amazing female musicians. And at KEXP, we play a lot of female artists. But female representation in the music industry as a whole still has a long way to go. A recent study found that only one of five pop stars are women. And female producers are even more rare. Only 2% of producers are women. Contributor Celine Teoblocki reports on the challenges that one woman has overcome to become an artist, musician, and producer. Sarah Tudson is probably best known for fronting the band Illuminati Hotties. Here's a song off their 2018 debut album, Kiss Your Frenemies. She wrote all the songs, played many of the instruments, and produced the whole thing. The album began as a kind of calling card to show off her technical skills. Today, Tudson is in a recording studio in L.A. She's here with some members of Illuminati Hotties. They're laying down tracks for their next album. Yeah, exactly, something like that. And then also, the only other thing is just those eighth notes, like, really push them into the chorus. I feel like they just... Tudson knows how to produce for herself. But since the success of Kiss Your Frenemies... Other bands have taken notice and asked her to produce for them. A lot of bands were like really excited about wanting to collaborate or like involve me somehow now that they had heard this project. Tudson has since had her hands on 20 records, some as a producer and others as an engineer or mixer. Tudson loves producing because it takes creativity to bring someone else's vision to life. You figure out something cool and you like you're like, just play it this way, like let's try it. And the band's like, okay. They come back in and you play it on the speakers and everybody's like, oh my god. So that's my favorite part of making a record is there's definitely a moment when the artist realizes that they're like making art. But not many women go on to become producers. After Tudzine graduated from Berklee College of Music with a degree in music production, she went on to work at a big recording studio. When she arrived, she was stuck with the grunt work, such as getting coffee and even janitorial tasks. At like four in the morning, I was like cleaning a toilet with somebody who had worked there for like three years. And I was like, I gotta leave. Like, I can't, like, there's gotta be another way to do this job. She only lasted six weeks at that studio. She realized women who had been there for a while weren't getting promoted to jobs that were more hands-on with the music. They were continuously pushing other women into the desk jobs instead of the assistant jobs. One male colleague told Tudzin straight out she would never get behind the boards there anyway. 
And I was like, why? I'm doing the same job that you are. And it was just like, well, it just, you know, the vibe here is like not really friendly if you're if you're like a girl. This statement is echoed by research from the University of Southern California's Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. The report released in 2018 looked at the Grammy nominees and those who made it on the year-end Billboard Hot 100 charts between 2012 and 2017. The research revealed that only 2% of producers were women. Grammy president Neil Potnow was asked about this gender imbalance while backstage at the 2018 awards show. He replied, women need to step up. The backlash was swift. Dr. Kate Pieper is a research scientist who co-authored the report. What happened at the Grammys that year, that really, I think, influenced how women pushed back on the industry and said, it's time for a change. We, we need more female representation and we are, we're going to do something about it. As a result, several new initiatives were created. For example, Alicia Keys' She Is The Music, a global network that aims to increase the number of women in all roles across the music industry with songwriting camps and mentorships. The Recording Academy also set up an initiative aimed specifically at tackling the problem by getting established producers to work with and sponsor up-and-coming female producers and engineers. John Vanderslice is a musician and producer. He owns Tiny Telephone Studios in San Francisco and Oakland. He says he's always had women producer engineers in his studios. We have six engineer producers on staff and half of them are female. As a musician himself, Vanderslice is currently working on a record that will be produced by Sammy Perez, who plays bass in the band Cherry Glazer. But Van der Slice admits the female representation he sees in his studios and projects aren't the norm. It's like a boys' club. It's pathetic. He goes on to say he's met great female producers like Grammy winner Leslie Ann Jones. She's worked on albums for Alice in Chains, Rosemary Clooney and Bobby McFerrin. She's also worked on the soundtracks for Apocalypse Now, Requiem for a Dream and more. There's also Sylvia Massey, who has produced for Johnny Cash, Tool, and Red Hot Chili Peppers. Both of them have been like tremendously important to mentoring female engineers and producers. But I would say that it's like a you might as well be looking for like female engineers at Google or something. It's it's terrible. Vanderslice believes bands themselves can be part of the problem. This lack of female representation is a vicious cycle. Because the music industry has been male-dominated for so long, bands gravitate towards the same male producers over and over again. Chasing credits is like pure idiocy. I mean, so many bands do that. If you're supporting just like people who already have power over and over and over again, there's something wrong with you. Do you know what I mean? It's not just like male-female. It's just like you can't just be doing this game. This is how power gets concretized and you have these like unbreakable systems you know i'm really against that kind of thinking i think that the proof is in like what someone actually does 
it's exciting to hear someone who's just coming up, who's working on very limited equipment, and they make really interesting records. Like Van der Slys, Tudson says she sees more female producers in her music world than what that 2% number would make it seem. She also sees the industry changing. For example, bigger bands are becoming more conscious about which bands or artists they invite to open up for them on tour. Artists are specifically looking to lift up bands that are fronted by women and by people of color and by queer people and, you know, marginalized people. Despite this push for diversity in the music industry, Tudzin notices that not all white male bands are happy with this shift. I think that has been reversely intimidating to a lot of bands that are just white dudes. But the truth is, is that those bands are going to be totally fine and they're not not getting opportunities and they're doing just as good and record labels are still signing them. The music industry has shut women out for decades and Tudzin feels that these bands missed the point. I think that's sort of the thing that everybody forgets about is that it is just sort of like making space for more people. It's not excluding the people that have already been sitting at the table, you know. Tudson has noticed more women amassing influential credits as producers, from St. Vincent to King Princess and Claro. She doesn't feel that it's in anyone's interest for the music industry to keep out half the population, or anyone who identifies as non-male. In the meantime, Tudson is still plugging away at her own music and production. Her latest single called People Pleaser was recently released. For Sound and Vision, this is Celine Teo Blocky. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Travis Thompson is a 23-year-old rapper from Seattle whose album called Reckless Endangerment was released this fall. He joins me now to talk about the record. Hello. Hey, what's going on? How you doing? So, a song on this album called Glass Ceiling. Glass really, Ceiling, yeah. Yeah, really yep. stuck out to me in this album. So it starts off with you almost kind of like doing this land acknowledgement and, and you talk about yeah. kind of your it's, his- a, it's a land acknowledgement and it's also, it's a Blue Scholars line, that first line. Oh, it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. live That's from awesome. occupied Duwamish territory. That's from North by Northwest, well, Blue Scholars. Live from occupied Duwamish territory, where Geo Saba made the bricks for trying to tell the story. And then it moves on to Macklemore, who's yeah. been a mentor to you. And yep. Macklemore gives a shout out to Blue Scholars, who's a Everything, group. Everything, yeah. Seattle they, in general, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Blue Scholars has been a hip hop group in Seattle forever. Yeah. Nah, I remember when the scholars sold out the chop. So we I hit the UE, the line was wrapped around the block. And if it wasn't for Gio and Saba, letting us open at the Paramount for the scholars and minor shady ass, paying us a couple hundred dollars, I might not be in this house looking right over the water. And then you hear Gio, otherwise known as Prometheus Brown of Blue Scholars. Yeah, yeah. Still a blue scholar, just in case you had the question. Beat rock till I get reverted to the essence. Northwest till I get the porter for my pigment. And then it ends with Sir Mix-a-Lot. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Legendary. The CD is in me. Y'all can't bend me. I was full of good games, spite doubt and envy. 
I mean, this is like four generations of Seattle hip hop in one song with just a lot of local references in it. Yeah. So, what kind of impact did, did you know these three other artists have on you personally when it comes to just you know starting off your career, being in the hip hop scene here in Seattle? Man, so. As a kid, like, I grew up going to local hip-hop shows and local shows around the city since I was, like, 12 or 13. Like, when you ask around about Travis Thompson and, like, Seattle hip-hop circles, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that was a little chubby kid with the backpack, like, and the Justin Bieber hair. I grew up on the Blue Scholars, you know what I mean? Like, my dad got me, a, a like, the Bayani Redux when I was, like, a little kid. And then, like, Language of My World dropped when I was younger, too, and that's, like, one of Max like arguably best projects when i take a step to the mic is hip hop closer to the end cuz when i go to shows the majority have white skin you know what i mean like i grew up on those and it's so mix a lot it's just always like when you tell someone you're from seattle and like you're a rapper they go oh like oh what who does seattle got and then they they bring up some mix like baby no matter what, if you like rap music, if you talk about rap music, like these three dudes have been, and you're from Seattle, these three dudes are like part of your life in a way. You know what I mean? Like if you're connected to the scene at all, if you're listening to hip hop from the city at all, like Sir Mix a Lot, Mac and Geo are like, it's like the Mount Rushmore. You know what I mean? Like it's like, it's like, it's like that. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. And how did you get them all to be on this one track? Man, so like I texted I texted Matt because he was kind of the catalyst of the whole thing happening. I was like, yo, I got this idea. I've never asked you to do a song. You know what I mean? Because I've known him for a few years now and I've never like asked him to like even come to the studio or anything like that. So I was like, I have this idea. I want you on this song. I want it to be a posse cut. I want it to go... Me, you, then Geo, then Sir Mix. I want it to be like this. And I just basically broke him down, like, the whole idea of the song down to him. And he was like, oh, no, we're making this happen for sure. And then it was, like, a few months process to make it, to grab all the pieces together. You know what I mean? Like, Geo sent his verse. And then we're like, oh, can you do this, actually? And then he sent another verse. And then Max sent a verse. He's like, oh, no, I want to redo it. But you know what's funny? Sir Mix-a-Lot was, like, the easiest out of all of them. You know what I mean? Like He's got history. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, we hit him up. He was on tour and everything. And he still was like, he was like, oh, yeah, I'll get that to you in two hours. And like he sent it back to us super quick, really excited. Like, yeah, no, it was crazy. So it was like, it was a process. But at the same time, it was great. It was fun. Can you talk a little bit more about your connection with Macklemore? I mean, yeah. I mean, he's kind of been a mentor to you. You were yeah, a part of his yeah. residency so, program. When I was uh, fresh out of high school, I did this program called The Residency. It's over at Mopop. And it's basically like rap camp for low-income youth in Seattle. And you just meet up with other kids from the city. You have studio sessions. You have creative workshops. Other artists from the city come in to do panels. You get to meet these people and talk to them. So I did that when I was like 18 years old. And then uh, I just kept putting out music in the city, opening shows. Eventually, my uh, my homie Tyler, who's my engineer and producer, became Max engineer. So he was putting my music in his ear. And then he invited me to the studio one time. We made Corner Store, our song with Dave B. Posted at the corner store. And then, I, like a few weeks after that, he hit me up. He was like, "You want to come on tour?" Then I did the whole Gemini tour. We did Fallon. You know what I mean? Like, and then after that, it kind of became like I used that as a springboard to like start a lot of what I have going on. And that's when like labels started talking to us, agents started talking to different people, and he was just kind of always like an ear for everything and I mean like I'm like I don't know what this means I don't know what this guy's intentions are can you tell me what this means can you tell me what these kind of people are like he's just been like a just an ear and just like someone I can like ask questions to I feel like it's a powerful ear to have for sure no and especially as like the king of independent hip-hop really you know what I mean like no one's really done it like them so like in terms of DIY and doing it yourself like he's taught me a lot for sure 
I'm speaking with Travis Thompson. His latest album is called Reckless Endangerment. And I want to play a clip of your song. It's called Enough Today. Oh, hell yeah. See my mama clocking three jobs. Every one of them was thankless. See my father break his back for men who really just ain't it. And judges tell us they don't believe in rehabilitation. What's the point of this, huh? I knew the Can you talk about this line about your parents and describe, yeah. like, who, you, who, who are your parents? How I'm, would you describe them? Yeah, so my parents, my mom is a saleswoman from... Seattle. My dad is a baker from White Center. He's also from the res down in uh, Arizona, Window Rock, Arizona. But like the whole idea behind that is like I seen my mom clock into three jobs. Every one of them was thankless. Like there was a time in my life where my mom was like a saleswoman. She also worked with her friends catering. And then she also worked at the mall, like at a cookware store during holidays. And there was a really a time in my life where like We were super broke and she was working three jobs just so we could have like Christmas presents. Like that was the whole thing. You know what I mean? Like, damn, I didn't even cry thinking about it because it's just like, oh, my God. I remember working two jobs just as like a 21 year old or like a 20 year old being like, how do you do this? So like that's where that comes from. And then like the seeing my father break his back from men who really it's just seeing companies and jobs just like not respect my family or my father or like, you know, you know how it goes. Like you've been at a company for so long and then they're just not treating you like you've been there for super long and it's like that's the whole catalyst behind like me not ever wanting a real job is just seeing how like real jobs do your family you know what I mean and then like and then it goes into being like I've seen judges tell my family they don't believe in rehabilitation and that's like that comes from a real place like we were really in a courtroom and I watched a judge tell my family like oh since I don't believe in rehabilitation boom tears are sentence and it's just like whoa like okay even if you're gonna send someone to like a correctional facility like jail or prison, like the idea behind that is rehabilitation. Even if you don't believe it is, that's the that's the quote unquote idea is rehabilitation. So to see a judge say that to your face, I don't believe in rehabilitation. You're like, what's the point of any of this? So that's where that whole line comes from. And I appreciate you asking about that because that was one of those verses we wrote and it was like, whoa, like it feels weird, like spitting this on a microphone in front of my friends in a room. You know what I mean? Like those are that that was one of those moments on the album that's like super raw and like super as me as it gets. You know what I mean? I know, but that's kind of like what, what hip-hop and rap is about. No, is for like sure. Talking yeah, about who yeah. you are and where you're talking from. Talking about who you are and like trying to make something out of a bad situation is really is really what hip-hop's about, and that's what the whole song is about. So you also have this line uh, in the song Inebriated where you say, mm. um, we're part of the town that nobody expected to get it. We from a part of the town that nobody expected to get it. I feel like everything we do is trying to rep something people don't really care about you know what i mean so that's the whole like we're from a part of the town that nobody ever expected to give the world uh it's very much like i'm from Burien. like when you think of seattle or when you think of the city in general you don't expect anything special to come out of Burien. like when's the last time you heard of someone talking about something over in Burien? you know what i mean that's the whole idea behind it is like and it's also it's a homage to the res you know what i mean because i feel like a forgotten part of the country so like the reservation is like we're from a part of the town we're from a part of the country that nobody expected to give the world anything and now we're on tv and now we're doing this you know what i mean it's it's very it's really much just like i'm repping a part of the town no one expected anything from and like expect more is really what i'm trying to say I've been speaking with Travis Thompson. His latest album is called Reckless Endangerment. Travis, are you going to be touring or performing anytime soon we can check you out at? Um, I just finished the tour. I'm back on the road in the top of January, I believe. Yep. This is Sound and Vision. Musicians are boycotting Amazon. More than 1,000 bands and musicians have signed a pledge called No Music for Ice. This comes after Amazon announced its first music festival. It's called Intersect, and it's happening in the beginning of December in Las Vegas. 
The musicians who sign the pledge say they will not participate in Amazon-sponsored events or partner with Amazon in any way unless the company does the following. Terminate existing contracts with military, law enforcement, and government agencies such as ICE that commit human rights abuses. Stop providing cloud services and tools to organizations that deport people from the U.S. And end projects that encourage racial profiling and discrimination, such as Amazon's facial recognition product. Zola Jesus is one artist who signed the pledge. She says she wanted to be part of change, but she also realizes this could be a financial risk for her. A big way she makes money as a musician is having her songs placed in film and TV shows. Her songs have appeared in shows such as Grey's Anatomy and How to Get Away with Murder. But yeah, that is actually one of the only ways that I like can make money when I'm not touring is through that income. That's like one of the only <laughs> income streams for a musician these days. She says by signing this pledge, she's cutting herself off from future opportunities to have her music placed in productions by Amazon Studios. You know, a lot of people put my music in their shows and stuff. So, and in the past, I never really was critical about, well, who's making this show? Who's producing it? Where is it premiering? Like, who has the rights to it? But now I have to be more aware of that. Like, is this an Amazon Studios production? I'm not going to work with them if, if it is. Julia Shapiro of Chastity Belt also signed the pledge. She says her band has never played an Amazon-sponsored event before, but she has friends who've played Amazon parties before. And it's tough because we're just trying to make like money as artists, which is really hard. And Amazon is this local local <laughs> business that has all this money. So, yeah, I can see how smaller artists could get sucked into it. Shapiro says she'd like to see more mainstream artists sign the pledge. As it stands now, it's mostly indie artists who've signed it. I got in some stupid Twitter fights with people who um, responded to the petition by being like, oh, like, like I care, never heard of these artists. The Seattle-based band Versing also signed the pledge. We're tied together, tied together. Member Daniel Salas says he thinks indie artists have a little more freedom to sign the pledge compared to major acts. I think it's because indie bands are less closely managed. I'm sure a lot of band managers are telling the bands they manage, don't sign this, don't do this, or they're not letting them do it. You know, labels are probably, you know, not going to be okay with their artists doing this. The more control you have over basically people who whose priority is profits. I mean, that's really just what it always comes down to. So I think for the bigger artists, there's they're definitely a lot, there's a lot more at stake financially. Solace and his band members also have day jobs. They don't rely on their music to be their only source of income. We're, we're such small fish that it's not, I don't think it's going to hinder us too much. At the end of the day, it's an easy decision because my priorities are not necessarily to do whatever it takes to make money with my band. Sala says he doesn't think his band has ever played for any Amazon-sponsored event before. 
But it can be hard to tell, when it comes to festivals at least, if large companies helped financially back it or not. Basically part of the problem is that there's not a lot of um, transparency with who is putting on events. Um, You know, these big festivals, they obviously require a lot of money to put on. And, um, you know, you're going to have some, a lot of times larger corporations are going to be funding them. And, uh, you know, I think the events need to be a little bit more upfront with who they're working with, because some of the artists were surprised um, that this was a big Amazon event. You know, they don't really make that. They're not leading with that a lot of the time. But Solace doesn't expect Amazon to change the way they do business anytime soon. The pledge is more a way for artists to express solidarity with one another while trying to take a stance than it is a realistic way of forcing Amazon to change its behavior. I don't expect that they're going to see this pledge and change anything. The Amazon Web Services Music Festival called Intersect features artists such as Beck, Foo Fighters, Casey Musgraves, and Spoon. I reached out to other festival performers such as Wiseblood, Japanese Breakfast, and Brandy Carlisle for their comment on the festival and No Music for Ice pledge, but I did not hear back from them. Amazon and AWS also did not respond to my request for comment for this story. Please don't cry, This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. So it's been two years since the rapper known as Little Peep died from prescription drug overdose from the anti-anxiety medication Xanax and the opioid fentanyl. The rapper was 21 years old and was on a tour bus when he died. A documentary about Little Peep called Everybody's Everything will be released will be released later this month. Meanwhile, there's now a lawsuit heating up over who's to blame for Lil Peep's overdose. This case is going after Lil Peep's management and handlers. Here to talk about the case and its potential implications on the music industry is Mark Hogan, a senior staff writer at Pitchfork who's written about the case. His story is called Why Lil Peep's Mother's Wrongful Death Lawsuit Could Change the Way the Music Industry Views Drugs. Hi, Mark. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining the show today. So how involved does this lawsuit say management was in Lil Peep's substance use and, and kind of their, their role in the eventual overdose? Uh, pretty involved. I mean, the lawsuit says Lil Peep was stressed, overwhelmed, burnt out, exhausted, and physically unwell, uh, but that his managers still you know, pushed him up onto stage after stage and city after city, plying and propping him up uh, with assorted substances. And uh, in some cases, um, according to the lawsuit, I mean, they basically provided those to him and and even suggested that he take them, which is, uh, um, yeah, I mean, those are the allegations. But yes, very involved. Wow. And how has how has Lil Peep's management responded to to these allegations? They denied the allegations and they called them um, offensive. Groundless and offensive was, was the phrase. And they haven't responded in court yet, but that was uh, the statement that they've made to the press. And how are these drugs obtained? I mean, I, I understand that Lil Peep has a, has a long history with anxiety dating back to when he was like 16. So that might you know explain the Xanax. But when it comes to the Xanax that he was taking along with the fentanyl, how was he obtaining these substances? Do we know? Yeah, it's unclear where the drugs originally came from, but if the complaint is accurate, his management and handlers were helping him get them. But, uh, you know, yeah, where they originally came from you know, could be of interest to uh, district attorneys, uh, 
um, you know, in, in Tucson where he died. Um, that's the kind of thing that comes up in other cases. But it's not like he was actively had a prescription going with with his own personal doctor for fentanyl or Xanax. I don't know if he, if he was on any prescription drugs, but uh, definitely the, the texts that are in this lawsuit suggest that he was you know, messaging with his management team for these drugs and they were getting them for him and that they were you know, uh, illicit drugs, not ones that he was prescribed. I see. And it seems like in Little Peep's music, he also like kind of would write about his mental state or almost like cries for help in a way. Like, for example, like his album was called Come Over When You're Sober. Are there songs or lyrics that stick out to your mind that kind of when you think about this case, like maybe maybe Little Peep had cries for help that he was expressing in his own music? One lyric that comes to mind uh, is he said, I used to want to kill myself, came up, still want to kill myself. I used to want to kill myself, came up, still want to kill myself, my life is going nowhere. That's obviously really, really sad, and just as another example of the ways that uh, his lyrics were, I mean, they addressed depression really openly, uh, but it seems maybe a little bit too sadly true to life in this case. I want to go back to this idea that Lil Peep's management was propping him up with drugs for their own financial gain. Financial interest, drug abuse or not, this seems to happen in the music industry. For example, R. Kelly's management knew about the singer's involvement with underage women, but never did anything about it or held him accountable. And I also think about Avicii, the Swedish electronic artist whose management encouraged him to keep touring despite his high anxiety and serious health issues. Avicii ended up retiring from touring and later committed suicide. You know, but in these instances, management knew something was wrong, but kept pushing these artists. Are there other artists you can think of where management was enabling them or pushing them for their own financial gain? I think uh, Vichy is a really great example that that I hadn't thought of. And uh, I was really glad that you brought that up. Yeah, he said in a documentary that if he keep, you know if he kept touring, it would kill him. Um, Avicii said that, and I believe he you know fired his management, and there's no allegations of of wrongdoing. And then of course uh, he, he he sadly died. As far as other examples, I'm not going to go around and you know start um, you know accusing you know management of, of very serious things um, without it already being you know kind of out there in court where it's where it's uh, safe but I think that what's unique is that um, little peeps mother sued his managers like you, you look at the Mac Miller case which is an, another example of a young performer uh, you know, who died of, of a drug overdose um, there's a criminal case ongoing there and I believe that that's against the people who the, you know the drug dealers the people who provided him with the drugs and the little peep case, it seems to be unique in being against uh, his, his managers. I, I, you know, in this kind of situation, I you know, hesitate to go out on a limb and say something is the first of its kind or totally unique because, you know, at some point you could go back and find maybe another example. But when the lawyers that I spoke with all said that, you know, they had never heard of anything like this before, which I thought was pretty interesting. So if this court case wins, the one that's brought on by Little Peep's mother, who's, you know, going after, you know, Little Peep's handlers and management saying that, you know, they pushed drugs on him that eventually led to his overdose. If this court case wins, what do you what kind of impact do you think that will have on the music industry as a whole? Well, it's it's a serious, you know, uh, long term, you know, lawsuit. It's not going to not going to end overnight, but uh, if Little Peep's mother wins, it could potentially have uh, have 
you know, quite significant outcome, especially if the management team gets hit with a really big jury verdict. Um, you know, uh, legal experts were telling me that the case being filed at all could lead to a ripple effect. And then just if, man, I mean, managers in general probably know better than to do the things that are alleged in this case, you would hope. But if there are people out there that are, you know, not thinking about it and uh, providing drugs to their artists, of course, if Little Peace Mother wins a huge verdict here, you hope that they would uh, you know, think twice um, before before doing that again. But just, I think, in general, hopefully this brings more awareness um, to the issue. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what the impact ends up being, but it, it could have a big effect. You know, it might not be uh, isolated just to the uh, music industry either. Something else that kind of came up is talking to, to, to lawyers. A lot of the usual lawyers I talked to uh, you know, didn't have a comment or, or didn't get back to me. And that's kind of when I realized that it was interesting. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, maybe there is a lot to this. And I started talking to uh, all these lawyers who've worked more on, uh, who've also worked on wrongful death type cases. And, um, you know, one that, that came up in talking was, um, you know, the case of Major League Baseball player Tyler Skaggs, who was 27 when he died this summer, um, you know, again, from an overdose of uh, some of the same drugs in Lil Peep's case. And uh, so this could have, you know, an impact uh, on the music industry, but also beyond just, you know, in any industry where managers have, you know, uh, a short-term incentive in, in propping up uh, young talent. Well, I've been speaking with Pitchfork's senior staff writer, Mark Hogan. His article in Pitchfork is called Why Lil Peep's Mother's Wrongful Death Lawsuit Could Change the Way the Music Industry Views Drugs. Mark, thanks so much for chatting today. Emily, thank you. Glad to be here. This is Sound and Vision. Well, it's now time for our listener question. This week, we asked, what's a band you saw before they got big, and what did you think of them at the time? I'm Suzanne, and I live in Seattle back in about 1986. My roommate was Chris Cornell. We lived in a house in Ballard with um, a couple of the people, and his band used to practice in the basement, and I wasn't a huge fan at the time, although I kind of heard that they were getting famous, but they were just kind of... They would come over and practice in the basement, and um, I didn't think much of it at the time. Chris was just kind of my roommate that we would go dog walking a lot and camping and hiking. Years later, I found out that the band blew up, and um, it just seemed like a very long time ago. Black This was Glenn Shave in Charleston, South Carolina. A memorable first show for me was seeing Natalie Merchant. I think it was 1988 at the Newport Music Hall in Columbus, Ohio, which is at Ohio State. And um, that's still an active venue, by the way. So uh, Natalie came out personally to introduce her opening act, who was a young lady whose first album was coming out um, the next day. And uh, Tracy Chapman walked out on stage, sat alone on a stool, in a black turtleneck and played a fast car and proceeded to blow everybody's minds in the venue. So there was a couple sitting at the table next to me and in the break before Natalie Merchant came out, I chatted with them and they were, and uh, they were Tracy's parents. And it was the first time she had played for them live in concert. And it was, uh, it was pretty magical for all involved. You get a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere. 
maybe we make a deal Maybe together we can get somewhere Any place is better Starting from zero, got nothing to lose Maybe we'll make something Me, myself, I got nothing to prove Hi, this is David. I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I moved to Seattle in the late 80s to attend Cornish College of the Arts. And I met this girl at a party, a flower child. Her parents were hippies, and she grew up in a commune in Alaska, so I remember. And her name was Nirvana. She was incredibly beautiful, and I was enchanted. The next week, I noticed uh, a band was playing at the Vogue, and its name was Nirvana. It was a Wednesday night, and I had tons of projects due on that Thursday, but decided to go anyways, hoping that perhaps she was in the band for no other reason than the band was called Nirvana. So I get to the Vogue, hoping to see her, only to find out she wasn't in the band, and she wasn't even in the club. To make matters worse, the band completely sucked. There were like 15 people in the audience. Disappointed on all fronts, I left after the third song, thinking this band was going nowhere. Convinced the whole night was a waste of time. So I walked out on Nirvana at the Vogue on a Wednesday night after the third song. Of course, Nirvana and Kurt later found their voice that ended up creating amazing music. And yes, I became a fan. So I was completely wrong. But I never saw Nirvana the Flower Child again. Thanks to everyone for responding to this week's listener question, and thanks to you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It would really mean a lot. And if you want to go the extra mile, it would be amazing if you could give a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org sound. All right, let's wrap up the show with our final question. Why does music matter? Here's Travis Thompson. Music matters to me because it's the most simplified yet beautiful form of communication and expression. Without music, the world is just a sad, quiet, dreary place. I feel like music is is the thing that not only brings people together, but like, I don't know. I, I wish I had a better answer for this other than like music is everything to me personally. Music is life. Music is... The is what wakes me up in the morning, you know what I mean? I, I feel off unless I'm listening to music. Music is life.